Hello, everyone. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Terror Talk on this beautiful day. Today we are going to talk about the French serial killer couple Monique Olivier and Michel Fronneret. Oh. <laughs> I'm not going to pronounce it that way the whole time because Please do. my French tongue, <laughs> my lack of French whatever mouth, you know. You learn how to... Your lack of French mouth. Yeah. I have a lack of French mouth. That's right. Because every language, your mouth forms in a particular way when you're very little. And so learning new languages when you're older is harder and harder and harder because you have a certain way that you form words. So whenever I go try to go back to my f six years of French from like high school and college, it's like my mouth goes, no. Oh, we don't form words like that. Michel Franeret, okay. mm -hmm, the French serial killer, he was known as the Ogre of Ardennes, was the charged. Ogre. Yeah. Was charged with abduction, rape, and murder. So here's the thing, right? Happy Valentine's Day today when this episode is That's originally so sweet. uploading. I just want to wish you a happy Valentine's Day. We're going to talk about killer couples. And some of you may have heard a clip from one of our Patreon episodes that would have come out earlier in the week on a different couple that Kathy talked about. And then next week, we will have another killer couple come out as a clip for our Patreon folks. So if you want to, if you want more of that and over 150 mini casts that we've done on our Patreon, please come join us. But for now, let's talk about these Frenchies. Michel died in 2021 before he could ever be brought to trial, but he was charged with abduction, rape, and murder. And that's one of the, because he had died, that's one of the reasons why there are so many more documentaries and information on Monique Olivier, who was his right hand in this situation. And what we're finding with these killer couples is they complement each other mm. in different ways. I would say each one has a slightly different way. There's lots of similarities to them. They are all male-female couples, the three that we picked. So there's, Some are French. There's that dynamic. These guys are French. <laughs> One is UK. So, you know, so there's a Netflix documentary called Accessory to Evil that I watched, which is about Monique Olivier. And it, I think the only reason why we're not doing more on Michelle is because he died. And so now there's all this concentration. And also just in November and December of 2023, Monique was brought up on more charges and convicted and given another life sentence for more charges. And so they're in the news, but Monique is mostly in the news because they're still convicting her of things. Why wouldn't they? Right. Fonore was accused of seeking out virgins to rape and murder over nearly a two decade span. And you could say that they were very successful in their work because it was a very long time before they ever got caught or there was ever any suspicion. Their crimes date back to 1988 in the case of Marie-Angèle Domis, Domes, I don't know, who disappeared at the age of 18. And what you'll find is all of the women that they chose were very young. Monique, as Fournere's widow and accomplice, 
Fernaray would never have been able to do this without her. And I think that's what we're finding in these killer couples is that the men need the women in these situations. But I would also say the women need the men for a lot of reasons. And mm-hmm. it's hard to know who enlivens what, you know, like who had sure. the psychopathy from the very beginning and who was susceptible to it and then became a part of it. It's it's hard for us to tell, but I know that Olivier was, is already serving a life sentence for her role in a bunch of other killings, five or six killings from before, and now just received another life sentence in, in like three more killings, like literally in 2023. So they're still prosecuting. I wanted to share too that Olivier in this recent trial, she told the court how... She and Michelle persuaded this young woman, Miss Parrish, who was a Leeds University student who was working as a teaching assistant. They persuaded her together to get into the van at like seven o'clock. It was 1990. Like literally they're persecuting, like they're prosecuting them 30 plus years later for these crimes. And this time they told the story of a we can give English lessons to your son type of thing. So that's another thing we find in these cases is that the the woman will often be the one that comes up with the story to manipulate the person to get into the van, to come along in the car. I'm just seeing that be something that happens with these folks or they'll put like a, like this couple put a small ad in a local newspaper offering babysitting, offering teaching services. And then they would get these young women wanting those services and then they would bait them. So Monique was often the one that would bait the person, the young woman into the car and the young women have this awful prejudice where they think like if it's a couple that they're safer Mm. and to me that's just two people instead of one like right that's more awful than i would i mean i would think so and maybe that's just because we know more now yeah, for but sure. But if when I, I were to kid, see, maybe not. Yeah, and maybe there was that message of like, well, if there's a woman there, then it's okay. But it's still that feels way more threatening, right? Right, and it's so clear. And that each of these couples talk about how they would use the female in the relationship. So in this case, Monique as bait to reassure the young women. Yeah, that makes sense. That it was okay, and. The thing about Fonare was that he wanted virgins. That was his uh, of course he did. F- fetish. And in the this case, this was said on the stand recently. In the case of Miss Parrish, what ended up happening is that he asked if she was still a virgin and if that if she had a boyfriend, and it and it upset and annoyed him that she responded, "Yes, I have a boyfriend," and that is actually what incited him to rape and murder her. So they would leave young women not murdered if they went along and they were they fit all of the check boxes for his violence and then if they didn't which they often didn't he would rape and murder them beat rape strangled miss parish so monique talks about how she 
remained in the front of the van while this particular murder was happening and she heard screaming and the sound of blows and just didn't look around. And that's another theme we see in a lot of these couples is that the woman will sometimes come up with a story, sometimes not. She'll be the bait, she'll comfort. And then the male is the one that enacts a lot of the violence. Now we're going to talk in a three-part series actually for our Patreon about Fred and Rose West. And that case is a little bit different because both of those folks had early trauma and abuse and were both psychopathic and both knew how to groom victims. Whereas in this case, it feels like Monique was a very submissive personality that got drawn in. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I do think there's a little bit of differences in these cases. Yeah. I know you did one for Patreon too, and we'll see if that pans out as being a little bit different as well. I'm going to go back now and talk about, because there's these recent cases, right, where where Monique was just convicted of them very recently in December. So now I'm going to flash back to Fonere was originally arrested in Belgium in 2003, and he was 62 years old when he was arrested. So there had been a lot of time for them to do what they did and for him to do whatever he was doing before he even met Monique. Here's how they got caught. I find it more interesting, honestly, these days. We've done so many of these that to me now it's more interesting to understand like a little bit of how they got caught as opposed to let's talk about every single rape, abduction, and murder that they ever did. <laughs> yeah, geez. So in 2000, young girls began to disappear in their area and bodies began being found. We don't know what they were doing before that or what Michelle had been doing before that, but what happened, they lived in this really small town and all of a sudden young girls were beginning to disappear and that does not go unnoticed in a small town. No, that would <laughs> so, be weird if it did. Right, so... They were both described as being, you know, this was still the era where there was a lot of news reports where like they would interview people on the street. <laughs> so I watched a lot of that footage. And oh, that's it was, fun. It was kind of fun because it was like they were described as being very odd, very sad, with very like very flat, very few expressions. Monique was described as being very plain, having a very messy, dirty, chaotic home. And they were also described as being very aggressive towards neighbors verbally, which I thought was interesting because, you know, most of the time we see these like killers and it's like, they were nice people. They were good neighbors. They were this, they were that. And that was not the case with this. Like everybody was like, yeah, they were weird. <laughs> they were so fucking weird. And when their home was searched, they found masks, condoms, handcuffs, children's clothing, gags, ski masks, knives, inhaler masks. Those should not be bulbs. in the same category. They're like, all in this, these people's homes when they went to. How do you put all that together? Right? Children's clothing, condoms, what? <laughs> all the things. They're rape kits, basically. They're Jesus. assault kits. They're it's disgusting. Like everything that you would have needed for that 
So it turned out that for about 16 years, the couple had worked together in doing all of these abductions and murders. And it was found that at least eight girls and young women, but you could imagine there was a lot more than that. Oh, sure. And what ended up happening is so... 2000 to 2003, like these little, these girls started to disappear in the small town. Fornare had previous charges for pedophilia, interest in children, all of this. And so what ended up happening is they were really concentrating on him and it finally stopped in 2003. And that's why he was arrested because a 13 year old girl had been abducted by them as a couple and was in the van and managed to escape the van. Basically they were tied up and this girl had the fortitude and wherewithal to be able to untie herself and jump out of the back of the van and start running. And she flagged down another car and she got into that other car and it was really interesting because then Fornare had ended up making a U-turn to go back to try to find her, but she had already gotten into this other car and their cars passed on the road and the driver of the car the little girl was in took down the driver's uh, license plate of Fornare's van and that's ended up how they arrested him is because they actually got his license plate and the girl said, that's the van. And then they turned him in and then he got arrested and he had had previous run-ins. And so then they searched his home and they found the masks, condoms, children's clothing, gags, et cetera, et cetera. And ended up trying and convicting them. And what I, I guess I would want to say about the documentary that I watched, which is a Netflix documentary called Accessory to Evil, and it's basically about Monique. And they talk a lot about the the crimes and how it goes through them, and it's like four, five, six episodes. It's a really long one. But I do think it explicates how they, as a couple, enacted their crimes. And for this particular couple, if we want to speak psychologically, Fornare was absolutely the sadist, psychopath, but not a sociopath because they were seen as very, he didn't pass, pedophile, child murderer, Everybody thought he was weird. Everybody stayed away. He was aggressive and mean in, in the city. And nobody liked him, and they thought she was weird and plain and very submissive. And it turns out she was. And now that she's been on the stand recently and talked about the murders, she's actually copped to everything she did, has uh, expressed guilt, expressed remorse, knowing like he couldn't have done what he did without me. You know, I'm a monster. We were monsters. She's said all of these things now. I think she's like 75 or something now. There has been this admission of, I was a dog. She says, you know, I was a dog. I just did whatever he said. I felt like I needed. Now, Do you believe that? Now there's a part of me, and I knew you were going to say that, there's a part of me that's like, 
Okay, so is that her trying to get off from these murders they're trying for her? And and there, that may very well be true. I also think it's a dialectic and both things can be true. I think so too. I think like she can both have been very submissive and very much under his control and also trying to get off of these other murders, although I don't know why you would because she's going to be in prison for the rest of her life. So, like, what's the motivation? Maybe they were maybe they were telling her there was a way, but I, I don't think so. Like, she literally went into this trial basically saying, like, yeah, we did all that, and then gave recounts of all the things. So I feel like she got to a point in prison where now it's just confession time, mm-hmm. like to absolve her soul or something. I don't know what her motivation is. I do kind of feel like... I don't know if I believe her or not to answer your question. I think. Well, I guess the question I, I asked that because there's this idea that she like became a psychopath over time. And I don't even, I don't know if that's possible or is it more like real control over another person that the cognitive dissonance of that person like, I believe in what they're doing. And I mean, it's really just a rhetorical question because it really comes down to culpability and how do you measure that when the person's actively engaging, but then we have to determine how much they're in control of versus how much they've been coerced and brainwashed and all of those things. So it becomes a really complex thing, right? Yeah. And I don't know that, I don't know that I believe she was coerced you know, in our definition and discussions about coercion recently, I don't know that she was coerced. I feel like over decades, when you hold women down, hold them in in the home, hear their screams, make up stories, I understand that there's what she's describing. And the police described this too, because when she was first arrested, she was eyes cast to the floor, didn't talk, didn't want to talk. Like, I think she was just terrified. There's these pictures of her, like, getting out of cop cars and shaking and trying to hide her face and stuff. And I just don't see how over that much time and you witness all of that, I realize there's a trauma there as well. But how you don't, you know, what is it in her psyche that, was connected to this situation yeah where you just never come out of the fog well yeah because exactly because at some point if you have a conscience Mm -hmm. um you are going to i mean if you think even about people who are in very abusive situations yes there is a level of awareness and the reason they're staying is not because they're necessarily actively engaging in the abuse. It's more so like I haven't yet found a safe way to leave. Right. And when, so when I see something like this, I go, she's still actively engaging. It feels like that. I mean, to me. that's what it feels like to me. So that's where I go. Yeah. I don't believe that you were that 
coerced or didn't know. I mean, you also sort of thrived off of this. I believe that she could say that she was the submissive of the two because we see that in male male unions, right? Where the one male is teaching the younger male how to do everything and then is also abusing the younger male to do to carry out different things and all that. Like we were just talking about Henry Portrait of a serial killer on another episode and and if you look at who Otis was, he was the pawn in those situations. Absolutely. But he was enjoying it and he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, so I see that in these women as well, Mm -hmm. where it's like the idea of over time, you know, these things grow over time. To me, it's like, okay, well, there was something inside of them that was able to be grown. In other words, if she had never met Michelle, would she have ever, would she have done something like this? Right yes you know what i mean like if he introduced her yeah maybe she would have found some other guy or some other woman that was more of a psychopath than she was but i think if we look at any research on psychopathy mm -hmm. unless someone is provided the environment or the enabling for you can go your entire life as a psychopath and never engage in any of this Mm -hmm. unless there's an opportunity where the psychopath's brain goes, ooh, that's thrilling. Mm-hmm. And maybe they didn't get there on their own, but it opened a door for them to entertain that psychopathy. Right. And maybe there, that happened, you know? Right. And, and I'm wondering, too, if there's the idea of certain personality disorders that would get themselves caught up in this and the connection... And the obsession and the attachment and the fear of abandonment or whatever it is that's attached to her partner, who's a stone cold, violent psychopath, there's something keeping her there too, just in their personality and in the connection there. Mm -hmm. And again, she was convicted of aiding and embedding, you know, and being complicit so this is a bit different, like than Fred and Rose West. This is a bit different than um, I think so too. I'm forgetting the name of the folks that you did are oh that we did, did a couple of weeks ago. Well, it, it would have aired a, just a couple of days ago for our listeners and for our patrons. So I'm not remembering their names, but maybe it was different for them too. Oh, it was um, the uh, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Oh yeah, yeah, the Moore's murders. Yeah. And do you remember if you feel like the woman in that was more of a submissive and a follower or? Yes, she was, but her history, even without Brady, made it very easy for her to become this. Yeah, like, and that's kind of what we're, we're finding is that these, the women are not, they're just ripe for these these kind of men too. Right. And it goes together. And again, they all have like more levels of violence. I would say Monique was maybe just from what you've said and from what I know about Rose West, like I would say Monique's maybe the the most sort of docile of them, even though fully guilty, fully complicit, she aided and embedded. She turned a blind eye. She watched all of these things happen. She was terrified of her husband, but I feel like she was the weakest of the three women. 
and the way and the way it grew over time. But also, you know, spending her life in prison. Mm. I mean, <laughs> she Jesus. had because because here's one of the things about her history is that she had. <laughs> this will be interesting to you, I think. In the 1980s, she had fled a violent first husband. So she had actually had two children with him and was trying to get out of that relationship and then became a pen pal of Michelle's while Michelle was serving a jail sentence for rape. Because like I said, he had a history of liking young girls, raping, and these kinds of things. And she fled a violent relationship to go to Michelle to be in a relationship with another violent yeah. man. I mean... <laughs> It'd be one thing if she left That's a nice. relationship with a violent man to go into another relationship with a violent man. And in neither one of those scenarios did she become a perpetrator. She was solely a victim. But that's yeah. not what happened. I, I, and I think, you know, as I'm, I, I still think she's the most submissive of like the three of these women. Yeah. But like, there's this story around how in their letters back and forth, she made a pact with Michelle to, if Michelle would kill her then husband who was being violent with her, then she would find him virgins to rape and stuff like that. Like, like she, they made that pact. Yeah. She was sick really, really early on. And, and I get that she was in a violent relationship and the amount of coercion and trauma and abuse and all of that, that she was probably at the hands of, but the way she saw to get out of it was to have, to be a pen pal of a rapist and make a deal with him that, that he would kill her husband. And he never did kill the husband. That wasn't his thing. He only, he, he only liked to rape and murder young women. That kind of denotes a certain amount of wherewithal for her. I just don't see how she was coerced into the making that deal. I, I don't, I don't think you can be. And I think that's, yeah. that's it. I mean, there has to already be yeah some capacity people are coerced that's, that's what i guess what we're saying right like it's yeah. not just like that this is this this person is just some like weak instrument no and and just like we know about any any other type of behavior illness disease how, whatever we're looking at if there's a genetic or a social predisposition and then add that to an environmental or situational component that opens the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. There's the perfect storm right. of that developing right. in the absence of this guy. Yeah. Maybe she never would have self-asserted. She might've just continued to be in abusive relationships yeah. and maybe ultimately killed a husband on her own. Something Possibly. like that out of, you know, yeah, but she wouldn't, this guy essentially said, here's your silver platter. Come join the fuck. I mean, I'm imagining he could have noticed in letters that he was getting from other women because there's always these women writing these awful serial killer rapists in prison. There's always... How did he... A, he found her... How did he find her? They were pen pals while yeah, he was so in prison he was, for rape. He was looking for... And <laughs> yes. we've seen this with other serial killers of the, these letter exchanges. He's looking for someone without boundaries... He's looking, and this happened with Brady and, and I feel like he profiled her and then 
Brady and Hinley was the same thing as he started to pressure and, and test Hinley's boundaries early on yeah. and found like, oh, she's completely committed to this. She's yes. going to help me. So he, prison is a great space. You have nothing better to do. You have women who are obsessed with these animals. And so he, he gets to vet. Yeah. Who will actually go along with him and do more of his bidding? Absolutely. And one of the things that he has in common with Fred West is that supposedly, right? Like I don't have proof of these things or anything, but he was sexually abused as a child by his mother. Oh. And so was Fred West, right? He was supposed to supposedly like a really intelligent child and played chess and all this other stuff. And, and, but then, you know, he was hypothetically abused by his mother and then took all of these menial jobs, but was first arrested like way back in 1966 for assaulting a young girl. So he had this long history of assaulting young girls and rape and all these different things and then finds his perfect compliment and then is able to do this kind of thing for years and years and years and years without getting caught. So it's like he found a way. He's like, I'm getting caught going to prison. So if he hadn't found her... He would have been in prison probably for life really early on. Mm-hmm. But because she entered the picture, she provided that cover for him. Sure. And she had to know that she was doing that. What, she, what is she getting out of it? You know? And I don't think anything necessarily. I think it's just a compulsion. I think you're just I think in so the too. situation and that's what feels like home or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there you are. It's just, it's super disturbing. And you know, happy Valentine's day. Yeah. (laughs) (sighs) Valentine's day, not, not, not a thing that, you know, it's not a thing really. So good Lord. We just thought killer couples would be good for Valentine's day. You know, love, love in the afternoon, afternoon delight, abduction in the middle of the day. (laughs) Jesus. What are we doing? Kathy? We're getting together on Sundays and being dark and (laughs) fucked up. (laughs) This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. (laughs) 